0: 1st Samuel chapter 16 this morning, please. 1st Samuel chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse number 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that every word of it is inspired, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be complete, mature, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so we pray this morning as we turn our attention to it, that, oh, Father, you would first of all uh, fill me with your spirit that I might teach, fill us all with your spirit that we might hear. And uh, speak to us today. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we pray for His, his uh, uh, empowering, uh, His uh, help today during this time. As we begin, Lord, looking at this such an important character in the Word of God. I pray, Lord God, we do it justice. And I pray, Lord God, we learn from Him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. His name means Beloved. Beloved. He was a warrior, he was a poet, he was a believer, and he was a king. Lord willing, for the next few weeks, we're going to study just a few lessons from the life of David. And before we do that, though, I think it would be helpful for us to understand just kind of where this fits into the history of the Bible, the history of the Old Testament. So just uh, a couple of quick reminders. You'll recall that when God had led the children of Israel out of captivity from Egypt, that he led them out under the leadership of a man by the name of Moses. Moses led them to the promised land. But he didn't lead them into the promised land because they rebelled. And God said, all right, fine, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until those of you who rebelled drop in your tracks. And of course they did. Moses also died and did not lead them into the promised land. at the end of that 40 years, there was a man by the name of Joshua and Joshua led the children of Israel the, over the promised land, into the promised land of Canaan, and into the conquest of the same. You can, of course, read about Moses in the first five books of the Bible. You can read about Joshua in the book that bears his name. And then after Joshua passed off the scene, came a period of time that is referred to as the time of the judges. And that time is also, uh, you can also read about that in the book that bears that name, the book of judges in the Old Testament. It was a time of, of uh, very little leadership. It was a time when God's people would serve him for a while and then they would fall away and disobey and rebel and God would uh, send them into captivity somewhere or punish them in some way and then he would raise up a judge to deliver them when they came to their senses and repented and that cycle repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. It was a time when there was no king in Israel but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That actually is the Key verse for the book of Judges, repeated all throughout the book. But eventually there came a day when the children of Israel cried out to Samuel the prophet, and they said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king. All of them have kings. We want to have a king. And at that time, Saul was anointed king. But if you'll remember, Saul rebelled rebelled against the Lord, and God removed him from the throne. And sought another to take his place. God said in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so God sent Samuel to Bethlehem. To the house of Jesse. To anoint the next king. And so we come to our scripture for today. And we meet David. David the eighth son of Jesse. I read, and I don't know, I don't, I don't take a whole lot of stock in the, in the study of numbers in the Bible, but I read where the number eight is usually thought of as the number of new beginning. In and Jesse, the eighth son of David, or of her, David, the eighth son of Jesse, certainly marked a new beginning for the children of Israel. In verse number 11, we see the first mention of David. And we've talked before about the first mentioned principle of biblical interpretation. The first time God mentions something or somebody, it's significant. And we learn uh, pretty much God's mind on that matter. And in the very first mention of David, what do we learn? We learn that he was a shepherd keeping the sheep. And if you want to know about David's character, that right there tells you an awful lot about David. And as we study him and we, we continue to go throughout looking at uh, more about David, we're going to find uh, that, that aspect of his, uh, of his life, the fact that he was a shepherd, colored nearly everything else. This fellow by the name of Arthur Pink who wrote a classic book called The Life of David. I've had that book in my library for 30 years and never cracked it open until this study. And uh, I started looking at that and he had some good things to say. But listen to what he said about the, the fact of how this shepherd aspect of David colored everything else about him. He said, and I quote, An incident is recorded of the shepherd life of David that plainly denoted his character and forecast his future. Speaking to Saul before he went forth to meet Goliath, he said, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him and that's first Samuel 17. Pink says observe two things. First, the loss of the one poor lamb was the occasion of David's daring. One lamb. How many a shepherd would have considered that thing far too trifling to warrant endangering of his own life. Ah, I was love to that lamb and faithfulness to his charge which moved him to act. Second, he says, but how could a youth triumph over a lion and a bear through faith in the living God? He trusted in Jehovah and, prevailed. and so there's a lot of things we could say about the fact that David was a shepherd, but let's just let's just say right now that it colored everything else about him. He was the shepherd king. The psalmist said in Psalm 78, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the ewes that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Most would say David's greatest psalm that he ever wrote was Psalm 23. And certainly he wrote that from the heart of a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. want. Well, as we look at what we can see here about David, we we learn some things. One thing that you can't really see here, we know he was young, but we don't know how young. Josephus says that David was 10 years old here. Uh, most other sources that I saw said he's probably more like 15 years old here. But nonetheless, he was still a child. He was young in this particular chapter. In verse number 12, we learn a little bit about what he looked like. We learned that he was ruddy. Ruddy. That word literally means reddish. And most people interpret that to mean that he had red hair. Or reddish hair. And the fair complexion. That would have gone along with that. Uh, we learned that he was he had bright eyes. Bright eyes. Literally, that means he had beautiful eyes, that he was good looking, or that he had handsome features. Not quite sure why the Holy Spirit saw fit to include that in there, but it, it's true. He was a, a good looking young man. And one commentator pointed out, though, that even though he was good looking on the outside, he had an even more beautiful heart. Beautiful exterior. Even more beautiful interior. And indeed, it was that aspect of his character. We start to see it here and we'll see it all throughout the study of David. That heart, a heart for God that set him apart. Remember what God said to Saul when he pulled the kingdom away from him. He said, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. That was David. A man after God's own heart. Was he perfect? far from it. As we study the life of David, we're going to see him reach incredible highs in his relationship with God. We're also going to see him fall to incredible depths of sin. But throughout it all, we're going to see a man who had a heart for God. And it was that heart for God, the fact that he was a man after God's own heart that set him apart. One person said it like this. He said, like us, David was a man who often failed who was subject to temptation and to sin. Like us, David knew despair and fear, doubt and loneliness. But like us, David had a personal relationship with the Lord and found in that relationship the secret of living above and beyond his potential. In this this study, I don't intend to get very, very deep into every nuance of the life of David or everything we can learn from him. But I would like for us to look at the major events in his life and see if we can pull out some lessons that apply to us. And I think we can. And so let's start that with this, this event here. The anointing of David. The choosing of David to be the next king. And, and, and you might see all kinds of lessons we can pull out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to concentrate on three. I'm just going to cherry pick three little things out of there that I think are very, very important for us to consider. And the first one is in verse number one. Verse number one. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? The first lesson I see for us in this entire story is that God's choice is best. God's choice is best. How long will you mourn for Saul? Think about that for a minute. The story starts out with God basically rebuking Samuel. Do you read it like that? That's what's happening. He's rebuking Samuel for a wrong attitude. Now, as we study scripture, it's hard to find too much wrong with Samuel. It's hard to find too many things that we would criticize about Samuel. He was a godly man. He was a, a good man, a great man, a great prophet. But here he had slipped into what uh, I believe it's Howard Hendricks used to call stinking thinking. That's what he's got going on right now. And God says, listen here. How long will you mourn for Samuel or for Saul? I have rejected him. I, God said, have rejected. So Samuel's continued mourning for someone whom God had already set aside was not appropriate, to put it nicely. God said, why are you mourning over someone I have rejected? One commentator put it like this. He said, there's a sharpness in God's expostulation with Samuel, which implies the prophet's grief for Saul was carried to an excessive and therefore even sinful length. In effect, God was saying to Samuel, what are you guys laughing at there? That was a good word, wasn't it? I like that word. I don't know what it means, but I like that word. In effect, God was saying to Samuel, I have made a choice. You need to get in line with my choice. You're supposed to be my man. Get in line with my choice. And so as a prophet, Samuel was rebuked for not caring more about the purposes of God than about his own dashed hopes for his own land. Think about this for a minute. There was apparently in Samuel a little bit of the patriot. Do you see that there? He cared about the kingdom. He cared about his people. He cared about the kingdom of Saul. And he had apparently cherished some high hopes for that kingdom. He was mourning what was. He was mourning what had been. He was mourning what might have been. And he was forgetting that God was still in control of all these things. I can't be absolutely sure, but I think there just might possibly be a little word for us there as American Christians. Do you hear it? You think there might be? Some of us who would sometimes find ourselves stuck in the doldrums of mourning and worrying about the passing of America. And forgetting that God's still in control. Forgetting that we ought to be rejoicing in and trusting in the fact that his plan is working out and his kingdom is coming. I think maybe there might be a word for us there. Something to think about anyway. Alfred Edershon said, it needed the voice of God to recall the mind of the prophet to the wider interests of the theocracy. God said, how long will you mourn? I have rejected him. He said, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. I have provided myself a king, God said. Now think about that statement. That's an amazing statement. One that should have shaken Saul out of his doldrums and out of his stinking thinking. Saul had been the people's choice. Saul had failed miserably. But God said, now let's talk about my choice. Because I have a choice. Saul had demonstrated what happens when we demand our way with God. And when we ignore his way, David would from this moment on show what happens when God's way is put on the throne. So while Samuel fretted and mourned over the apparent problems of the first kingdom, the apparent demise of the first kingdom, God reminded him he was still in control. I have provided. I have chosen. I have already chosen. It's already okay and taken care of. And my choice is always best. As I studied that this week, I thought how encouraging that is. When things are dark. When times are dreary, when needs are many. Well, those days when we want to throw up our hands and say, what in the world is going on? It encourages me to think of the fact that God's choice is always right. And at such times, I think we need to hear the word of the Lord to Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and go. In other words, let me paraphrase, quit moping. Start trusting and get going. We have work to do for the Savior, and it's not done yet. So the first lesson, God's way is right, whether we see it or not. God's choice is always right, whether we understand it or not. The second lesson I see is in verse number 2. Verse number 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. How can I go?
1: There's not a whole lot,
0: really, to say about that verse. Except to throw up our hands, perhaps, in some amazement, that Samuel would say it in the first place. Samuel, this godly man, this prophet who had seen God do so many things, this, this strong man who had stood toe-to-toe with Saul in the first place and told him that God had wrenched the kingdom out of his hand and was giving it to somebody else, this person said, God, what if Saul tries to kill me? Doesn't that seem amazing, that he would sink to that level? And I think the lesson is that even God's men our men. Because what we see here is the frailty of Samuel. We see that he was just, just a man like anybody else. And oh, how quickly he forgot who it was that he served. And oh, how quickly we forget who it is we serve. How quickly we forget that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Some little thing comes along and we forget all about that. How quickly we, like Elijah, go from some great victory in our life like Elijah, calling down fire via prayer, uh, uh, you know, and wiping out the 400 prophets of Baal. How quickly we go from such a victory, such as he saw there, to moping under a juniper tree, as he did, fearing the puny, soon-to-be-dog food, Jezebel. How quickly that happens to us. How quickly we forget who we serve. How quickly we develop the mind of Gehazi. Remember Gehazi. The servant of Elisha. One day Elisha, the, the enemies of God, came and surrounded and acted like they were going to attack. And Elisha was perfectly content. Gehazi was saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, open his eyes. And if you look at 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 17, you'll see that when Gehazi's eyes were opened, he looked and he saw all around him on the hills, chariots of fire and horses and the angels of God surrounding them in protection. How quickly we forget that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Samuel, for all his godliness, Samuel, for all his wonderful relationship with God, sometimes forgot that when God gives us a job to do, he will protect us in the doing of it. What if Saul hears about it? It's almost hilarious. One man said, it's plain enough that with all his glorious qualities as a prophet, Samuel was but a man, subject to... To the infirmities of men. When we would think too highly of ourselves, we ought to remember Samuel. Or when we would try to put somebody else on a pedestal, we ought to think of Samuel. As Alistair Begg has said, and I have quoted him so many times, the best of men are men at best. One last lesson. It's in verse number seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart the last lesson I think this must certainly be the main lesson from this passage is that God sees God sees you if we back up to verse number 6 we see that Samuel here as he's going to anoint the king the first thing he does is he defaults to the same criteria that he used the last time around have you noticed that? Verse number six. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The criteria that he had used before, if we were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, we'd see that Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Speaking of Saul, that there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. In another place, the Bible says that Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. So here was a guy who had the bearing of a king. Here was a guy who looked like a king. Here was a guy who had all the outward qualifications of a king. To the eyes of men, and even to the eyes of Samuel, he said, here's a guy This must be a king. And so his first instinct, when he comes the second time around and God says, go and anoint this person king, his first instinct is to take one look at Eliab, who apparently towered above him, who apparently had some impressive physical attributes, because he looked at him and he said, surely the Lord's anointed must be before him and yet in verse number seven can you not almost hear God incredulously say what can't you hear it can't you hear God saying no no this is not the one that I have appointed were you not paying attention the last time around Samuel those qualifications didn't work the last time, and they're not what we're looking for this time. Saul had been a wonderful example of outward appearance coupled with inward unfitness, and such an example one time should have been enough. But Samuel still had a little bit of problem with that. God says, don't look that way. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What's the lesson? What's the lesson for you and me? The lesson for you and me is that God sees me. God sees you. And when I first thought about that, the, the thought came to my mind well, God sees what I do. <coughs> and that's true. He sees what you do. Isaiah chapter 40 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's a great verse. Isaiah chapter forty is a great chapter. And that verse says some wonderful things. It contains the wonderful thought that our God never gets tired. Hallelujah. That his understanding is unsearchable. But it also reminds us, does it not, that nothing we do is hidden from the Lord. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? God sees what you do. He sees what you do. Years later, King David would write a psalm describing this very truth. and I was going to read it this morning, but I think, I think I'll let you read that on your own. It's Psalm 139. I encourage you, go and read that. And you'll see that all throughout that psalm, he is saying, where am I going to go? What am I going to do that God does not see? Do you wonder sometimes, whether God sees what you do. Maybe some who serve quietly and nobody else knows what you do. Do you wonder if God sees? Well, the answer is yes. God sees. He sees what you do.
1: But even though that's a true statement and a
0: true thought and something good for us to think about, something to bear in mind, it's really not what God said here, is it? He didn't say He sees what you do, He said He sees what you are. He says He looks on the heart. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs chapter 21 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So more than what we do, God is concerned with what we are. He's concerned with our heart. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican that Jesus told Pharisee and the publican who both went down to pray. And the Pharisee prayed this self-congratulatory prayer about how wonderful he was. Thank you, Lord. I'm such a great guy. Remember that? I thank you, Lord. I'm not a wicked sinner like all these other bums sitting around me. Remember that prayer? And then the publican prayed, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, just smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus, of course, said that the publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. But the point of the parable, I don't think, was what they did. It was what they were. It was a contrast in hearts. God saw them both. God saw the wicked, rotten heart of the Pharisee. God saw the right heart of the publican. In our text, we're at the very beginning of David's life. This is the first time we have met him. And we'll see, uh, the Bible takes us all the way to the end of his life. And once we get to the end, we're going to hear him charge his son Solomon. And listen to what he says to Solomon at the very end of his life. He says, as for you, my son, Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. And Solomon's going to take it to heart. He's going to remember those words. And then there's going to come the day when Solomon is going to be uh, standing there getting ready to dedicate the great temple that has been built. And in his great prayer at the dedication of the temple, he's going to say, Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. The prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, would say, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways. And according to the fruit of his doings. Do you hear it this morning? Do you hear the word of the Lord this morning? God sees you. God sees what you are. He sees your heart. And so the question has to be raised. What does he see? What does he see? Quoting from. Arthur Pink again, he says, Ah oh, reader, this is a solemn and searching question. It is at your hearts the, the Holy One looks. What does he see in you? A heart that has been purified by faith? A heart that loves him supremely? Or a heart that is still desperately wicked? What does he see? You know, it is quite possible and common to be able to fool other people. Very simple. Very something we see all the time. Remember old Captain Penny? How many of you remember Captain Penny? Captain Penny used to say you can fool all of the people some of the time, and all of the people, some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool mom. You remember that? I always thought that would have been a much greater quote if he had just changed that last word to God. Because think about that. It is true. You might be so good that you can fool all of the people some of the time. And you might be so tricky that you can fool some of the people all the time, but you will never fool God because he sees your heart, regardless of what others see. You know, Saul put on a good show for a while. King Saul appeared to be a godly man for a while, but eventually what he was became known. Eliab who looked here so impressive that Samuel, his prophet of God, looked at him and said, Oh, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. Eliab would eventually become known. On the day when his littlest brother stood and went up against Goliath, and Eliab had to cringe in fear because he didn't have the nerve to do it. Oh. God sees, regardless of what others see. There's an interesting contrast here in the words that are used of these different men, and it kind of he kind of tells us this this stuff. David, who had the heart God was looking for, the Bible says here that he's, God said of him, he said, I have provided. That's what the New King James says, I have provided. If you're holding a, a New American Standard, I have selected. If you're holding an NIV, I have chosen him. Those are interesting words, are they not? All God's uh, thinking about David. I have provided him for myself, is basically what he means. Or I have... Selected him, I have chosen him. Those are all interesting words, aren't they? They're positive words. They're good words. They're wonderful words. But look what he said about Saul in verse number one. He said, I have rejected him. Look what he said about Eliab in verse number seven. I have refused him. Terrible words. Negative words. Words of finality. So which would God say about you this morning? As he looks at your heart. What would he say about you? Jesus told the parable one time. Of the tares amongst the wheat. You remember that parable? The the, the basic truth of that parable. Is that as we go throughout the church age. There are always going to be those amongst us. Who are professors. But not possessors. There are always going to be those amongst us. Who look outwardly to all. Like they're, they're real. They're believers. They're Christians. But God who sees the heart knows that they are not. God sees you, and he sees your heart. And so the question this morning is, what does he see there? Well, there are many other lessons that we could look at from the, uh, this, this little story into the life of David. Uh, perhaps you can think of some. I hope you'll read it a little bit on your own and maybe think through some of these things. But let's just stop with those three. Number one, God's choice is best. Number two, God's men are men. But number three, and we said it number three, but it's really number one. It's the most important one of all. God sees your heart. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart.